Today's Old Testament lesson is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel. He said to me, O mortal, stand up on your feet, and I will speak with you. And when he spoke to me, a spirit entered into me, and he set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said to me, Mortal, I am sending you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are impudent and stubborn. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they shall know that there has been a prophet among them. And you, O mortal, do not be afraid of them, and do not be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns surround you, and you live among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words, and do not be dismayed by their looks, for they are a rebellious house. You shall speak by words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. But you, mortal, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. I looked, and a hand was stretched out to me, and a written scroll was in it. He spread it before me. It had writing on the front and on the back, and written on it were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Merrill, for reading our lesson. Thank you to all of our musicians and liturgists for leading us in this time of worship, and especially uh, those of you who are tuning in with us through live stream, uh, we welcome you and honor uh, the joy that's ours to be in worship with you today. Uh, if you joined us a couple of weeks ago, you know that we're in the third week of a series that we're choosing to call Lessons from the Quarantine. And I want to thank, especially I want to thank Forrest Hamilton uh, for sharing his insights with us this morning, for his word and his witness. Uh, we're grateful to you, Forrest. So as we continue to sort of muddle through the pandemic, we're taking a deeper dive into what I think is the most painful era in the history of ancient Israel. Of course, we're talking about the exile. It was in the early 6th century BCE that a new world power was on the rise. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian troops were literally redrawing the map. They had defeated already the waning Assyrian nation that had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had dealt successfully with the Egyptians at Carchemish. And now they're setting their scope on Judah. It was in 597 BCE that Nebuchadnezzar besieged the holy city of Jerusalem, dethroned King Jehoiachin, and put a puppet king, Zedekiah, in place. He deported many of the leading citizens, indeed 10,000 of the leading citizens, into Babylon. 
It's interesting, if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 24, you will find a record of the details of that deportation, and I quote, Nebuchadnezzar carried off the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's palace. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which King Solomon of Israel had made, all of this as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem, all the officials, all the warriors, 10,000 captives, all the artisans and the smiths, and no one remained in Jerusalem except the poorest of the land. Historians tell us that this was the first of two expulsions that was ordered by King Nebuchadnezzar. Such deportations were a typical way of inspiring psychological terror, but also the weakening of the will of a nation who was considering attempting a counterattack. And what we know about this period is that from this time on in the history of Israel, exile became a metaphor for the human condition. I was reading Eugene Peterson's definition of exile the other day. You remember Dr. Peterson, who wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message. He describes exile in these words, and I quote, exile is being where we don't want to be with people we don't want to be with, which then forces a decision. Will I focus my attention on all that's wrong with the world and feel sorry for myself? Or will I begin to focus my energies on how I can best live out my faith in this place that I find myself? I am convinced that what we've been living through the last four months is a form of exile. But unlike the Israelites, it's, it's not really an exile from home, it's an exile in home. Many of you have shared with me that it feels kind of like an incarceration in home. It feels like you're held captive in your own space and that social distancing, physical distancing, though absolutely necessary, has left us feeling disconnected, detached and cut off from community from extended family, and in some cases, even detached from God. I don't know about you, but the last four months sometimes feels more like four years to me. Many of you have been emailing me some of your thoughts of what you're learning from the quarantine, and I appreciate that. Uh, I had an email last week from my friend Sue, who is a young mother, 31 years of age, who's been homeschooling her four children the last bit. In fact, she sent me her story and her picture. I want to share her picture with you. This is Sue. And I think you can understand her pain. Uh, it's interesting that in the pandemic, 31 is the new 81. It seems to be aging us rather rapidly, and I resemble that myself. One of those exiles was a young intern priest whose name was Ezekiel. Even his name has holy meaning. It means God will strengthen. He was 25 years of age. His dad was a priest. His father's name was Butsai, whose lineage can be traced all the way back to Joshua 
and Rahab. Ezekiel was among the first wave of refugees that was made to settle on the banks of an irrigation canal called Kebar. It's an, in an area called Tel Aviv near Nippur, which is about an hour's drive from the capital of Babylon. He was the first prophet called of God outside Israel. In fact, it was five years into the exile when Ezekiel experienced what sounds to us like a very bizarre revelation. In fact, much of the material, when you read Ezekiel's prophecy, it's bizarre. It, it, it reads like a, a science fiction tale. In fact, ancient rabbis were of the opinion that reading this book was too dangerous for anyone under the age of 30. And at the time that God called him, Ezekiel was 30. Ironically, this was also the common age of intern priests being ordained into temple duty, the age of 30. But there was no temple in Tel Aviv, and no temple, no ordination. Our son Andrew was scheduled to be ordained a few weeks ago on June the 28th in North Georgia in Athens in the Classic Center. Our son Andrew happens to be 30, which is interesting. I was to be his ordaining elder on that night. I was to put the stole around his neck, but the conference was canceled. The bishop decided that she would consecrate by Zoom these ordinands until we can get together in person. It was necessary but disappointing because we're learning that there are some things that you just can't Zoom. And so after the Zoom conference, Sherry and I decided to get in our car and we Zoomed to Atlanta the old-fashioned way to celebrate our son's ordination. He didn't know we were coming. He was surprised when we arrived and we recognized in his expression that it was so important for us to mark that day in person. It was also a reminder to us that even in a pandemic, even in our isolation and exile, that God is still moving, that God is still ordaining, God is still calling. Now, every minister has a call story. In fact, Allison and Casey, it wouldn't take much to get you to share your call story or any of us. We love to share those stories. But Ezekiel's call story was a doozy. It began in chapter 1 with a great storm, flashes of lightning, rolling thunder. It's ironic that Tel Aviv was known for its worship of the ancient Mesopotamian god named Elil who was the storm god. In the midst of this storm, suddenly Ezekiel looks up into the heavens and there in the clouds, he sees what looks like a royal throne, a royal chariot, the glory of God on wheels. Creatures, odd creatures with four faces, including the face of a human, a lion, an eagle, an ox, complete with wings that are touching each other, which later in his book he refers to as seraphim. And they're upholding a platform, an ark, a throne, 
on which Ezekiel sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. But the interesting thing is it wasn't Eliel. It wasn't the Babylonian storm god who was well known in the area. It was Yahweh. Now that's a stunning thing to see in Babylon. It wouldn't have all, at all have been unusual to see this in Jerusalem. In fact, Isaiah had a similar vision in Isaiah 6. But what is a God like Yahweh doing in a place like Tel Abib? The vision for Ezekiel implies that God has left the temple and joined his people in exile. Now, that kind of news would not have been welcome in Judah because before the destruction of Jerusalem that he predicted that did happen six years later, many in Judah held out hope that God was going to rescue the people. In fact, the very notion of God leaving the temple was heresy to the Jews. It was anathema to the Jews. The people were banking on four promises of God in fact, they had a doctrine of eternal security based on these four promises. Number one, the Lord God had given the descendants of Abraham eternal title to the land of Israel, which meant that neither Nebuchadnezzar nor anybody else could ever be able to conquer Judah. Promise number two, at Mount Sinai, the Lord made covenant with Israel. In other words, he married Israel and there would be no divorce between the two. God, in other words, was obligated to defend his bride. Promise number three. In the house of David, God had put a ruler on the throne who had permanent claim to the throne of Israel. And that meant in their psyche that the city of Jerusalem and the throne of David could not possibly fall. Promise number four. God had established Jerusalem as his dwelling place forever. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, you'll find that Moses predicted 21 times that God would choose such a city and Jerusalem was the place the temple was the symbol of God's holy presence, and so in their minds, God would never vacate the temple. But in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed, and the city was demolished, just as Ezekiel predicted. And so the question in their minds and ours is simply this, what on earth happened? Did God change his mind about Israel? Did God forget his promises? Of course not. You know what happened. The chosen claimed the privilege of being God's people, but they forgot that with the privilege came a mission. They forgot that. They forgot that their responsibility, their purpose was to be a light to all the nations, not simply to themselves. 
to be agents of grace and reconciliation and compassion, to be to the world a model of righteousness and justice. And the truth of the matter is they had a lofty theology and a pagan lifestyle, and God was indignant. Of course, it's true, as the psalmist says, that God is slow to anger, but God does get angry. God is at times indignant and heartbroken over the plight of his people. But here's what I want you to know about this scripture. God never left the people. The people left God. And so apparently, according to Ezekiel's vision, God, who has wheels, takes a road trip to Tel Aviv and makes sanctuary with his exiles. He calls one of those refugees to be his prophet, to be his mouthpiece. And of course, Ezekiel is so shocked that he can't move. He can't speak for seven days. Like other prophets before him, he's sure that God has the wrong guy. He's sitting there thinking, here am I, send Jeremiah. But the Spirit props him up, resuscitates him, and then feeds him a scroll. A scroll full of woe, lament, and sorrow. And he eats the scroll and proclaims what God gives him. Judah will fall, and God makes clear to Ezekiel that the people he proclaims this message to will not respond well to the message. In chapter 2, verse 3 that Merrill read for us, God says to Ezekiel, look, I'm sending you to a nation of rebels. They and their ancestors have revolted against me to this day. They are obstinate, impudent, and stubborn. It reminds me of my first church. They don't tell you this stuff in seminary. The bishop doesn't share this information with you when he appoints you to your church. He uses words usually like potential, possibility, promise. But I've noticed that when God calls, God will never candy coat the call. It's going to be tough, he says. You're going to have some lonely days and some long nights. I'm sending you. And you will say to them, thus saith the Lord. In other words, Ezekiel, I don't want you to tell people what you think. I want you to tell them what I give to you. And then the PS in verse 5 is unforgettable. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, they will know at least that there has been a preacher among them. When I read that verse, I'm reminded that all too often in the church and especially in the clergy, we measure success in all the wrong ways. We measure success only by the positive response of the people by whether they like everything they hear or agree with everything you say and how you say it. But that isn't success, that's people-pleasing. In fact, do you remember the response to Jesus 
in his first sermon in the hometown church in Nazareth. You remember their response? They ran him out on a rail. They tried to heave him over a cliff. And I understand it. Listen, when the guy who makes your living room furniture starts saying, thus saith the Lord, you cannot expect everybody to get on board. And yet our history with prophets is not so good. We tend to avoid them or worse, we silence them or worse still, we dispose of them. And then a hundred years later, we confess our sin and honor their sacrifice. It's interesting to me that Jeremiah the prophet in chapters 23 and 24 describes false teachers, false prophets, as those who speak comfort for the sake of the prophet's acceptance and popularity. And yet here in Ezekiel, it's the exact opposite of that. Ezekiel's faithfulness is put to the test in a situation where the message and the circumstances are anything but comfortable. And the truth is, the truth is, the more it costs the messenger, the more likely that the message is true. Now, this is not just so for priests and prophets. It's also true for disciples. It isn't always comfortable to follow Jesus. The call to carry a cross is anything but comfortable. But I've discovered that it's almost impossible to grow spiritually when you're too comfortable. It's costly. But the cross is our measure of success. By the way, after the fall of Jerusalem in 586, Ezekiel will change his tune. There will be no more judgment. There will be no more sorrow, no more lamentation, no more woe. He will preach a steady diet then of hope, of restoration, of reconnection, they will go home again, be it 70 years. They will go home again to Jerusalem where God will keep and renew his promise. He will renew their hearts and reestablish the throne of David ultimately through the coming Messiah whose kingdom will be forever. I think there's a moral to the story of exile and it's simply this. Even when we forget God, God never forgets us. Even when we leave God, depart from God, God never leaves us. He comes in our exile and reminds us that we can be at home in any and every circumstance. Let me give one last word and I'm finished. A friend of mine in Georgia told me a while back that he and his family had moved. He had two children. The older boy, age seven, did not adjust well to the move. And one night, the second week, dad went upstairs into Jeremy's bedroom and he was laying on the bed with tears in his eyes crying. 
And the dad said to him, Jeremy, what's the matter? And the boy said, Dad, I want to go home. But son, said the father, we are home. This, this is our new place. This is our new home. No, dad, he said, I want to go home, home. And his dad knew exactly what he meant. In his seven-year-old mind, he was feeling isolated. He was feeling exiled. And for him, home, home is the place where memory is. Home, home is the place where life has been loved and shared and loved and lived and hoped. Home, home. There is a sense in all of us a longing for home, home. And the truth of Ezekiel is even when we're far from it, we can still know it because home, home is not just a place. It's a relationship. One of those exiles said in Psalm 90, Thou, O Lord, hast been our home, home in all generations. In the truest sense, the lesson learned in exile is that we can experience home, home, even in a place of shifting sand, even in a foreign land. May it be so for you, for me, in Jesus' name, amen.